as both an American and a Canadian citizen myself, certain facets of my nation's histories are fascinating to me. And one such event where the two histories of my nation actually seem to converge is about 200 years ago in the War of 1812. And it's, a, it's really the only war that was fought between my two countries, though Canada was part of Britain at the time. But intriguingly, both sides, both the Canada and the U.S. side, believe they won the war. A few weeks ago, if you're my friend on Facebook, you may have seen I went on a little rant about that and uh, about who actually won the war. If you're curious, I think the best answer is probably both or maybe neither, okay? Uh, not one or the other. But as I study the dynamics of this war, one little tidbit caught my attention. And that is after two years of, of fierce fighting, a peace treaty was signed in 1814. Good news, right? No one likes war. Love peace treaties. Good news. Here's the bad news, though. The peace treaty was signed in Britain, across the ocean. And it took six weeks for ships to travel the Atlantic with that news. Meanwhile, all the armies in North America just kept right on fighting. In fact, one of the largest and costliest battles of the entire war took place during this time in New Orleans when thousands of people lost their lives. See, peace was already won. And the good news was already completed. But unfortunately, these, these armies had no idea yet. And so it really meant nothing to them yet. I think that Jesus' disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, were in a somewhat relatable position for a while. See, as we saw last week, if you were with us, the unbelievably good news was completed. Okay, the war was won. Jesus had been crucified to death, but Jesus had risen from the dead. Great news. But unfortunately, the disciples had no idea yet. Or if they did, they didn't believe it yet. The good news was there, but they didn't realize the truth of it yet. Therefore, to many of Jesus' closest companions, even though Jesus was risen, things still looked unbearably bleak to them. We're going to see that begin to change in our passage today, as we're going to get our first glimpse of the resurrected Jesus through their eyes in Luke. If you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and we'll be beginning in verse 13, so that's on page 885 in the Pew Bibles. Last page of Luke in the Pew Bibles. That's Luke 24, 13, page 885. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have reached the pinnacle of this great book. And now, as the story continues, we're going to see how these events impacted Jesus' followers in the days ahead. And I hope, it's my prayer, that they'll continue to impact us as well today as his followers today. Can you please pray for that with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to your word today that you would truly open our eyes. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you in your glory for who you are. I pray that these words would speak with power, for we know they have power. We pray that your spirit would use them 
to mold us and shape us and grow us, to convict us, to encourage us. And we pray that more than anything, we'd see you and that our lives would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So as our story begins today, it's still actually Easter Sunday, okay? We haven't moved on from Easter Sunday yet in Luke 24. The resurrection was still a brand new supposed development, which hardly anyone believed yet. And last week we saw a group of women go to the tomb where Jesus had been laid, but they were shocked to find the tomb empty. And angels were there, glorious angels, and they were announcing this. If you look in verse 5 just quickly, it says, As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the, the men, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. This blew the women away, and they couldn't keep the news to the cells. So, they, so we read in verse 10 that they, and now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They ran off to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Today, we're going to meet two of the disciples that were there. Not two of the 12 disciples, they, there were other disciples as well, but two others who hadn't believed yet. We're given one of their names later on. His name is Cleopas, but we don't know who the other one was. Some speculate it may have been Cleopas and his wife. Anyway, but we meet these two disciples here in Luke 24. They're on a journey together. And as we'll see, it's going to be quite the memorable journey for them. Look with me in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. All these things that had happened. If you put yourself in, in these guys' shoes, we can only imagine how emotionally difficult this trip must have been. Right? They had traveled to Jerusalem, probably to celebrate the Passover, likely as well as to see Jesus. Perhaps they were part of the crowd that a week before had, had cheered, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, excitement had never been higher. Anticipation was soaring. Joy was abounding. Jesus' fame was skyrocketing. Everything was looking up. But now as they left Jerusalem, everything had crashed and burned. Right? They, in mere days, their hero had been betrayed and tried and condemned and crucified. And they sat shell-shocked with Jesus' other followers for a couple days. Just don't know what to do. Totally confused. Totally grieving. And then they eventually decided, well, I guess it's time to head home. So they... We see them here heading home toward Emmaus, and as they trudged down the road toward Emmaus, you can imagine their steps were heavy. 
Their hearts were heavier. They're talking over recent events. Probably passionately, sorrowfully. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. But then, a mysterious stranger came up from behind them, and he slowed his steps to join them. And Luke lets us in on the secret of who this was right away, but the travelers had no idea. Look at verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We might think, well, how, if these people were avid followers of Jesus, how did they not recognize him? Right? Maybe Jesus looked different than before. Maybe they never really looked closely at who was walking with them. But most likely, I think, they were just supernaturally prevented from recognizing him. Right? Verse 16 said, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So for the time being, God was doing this. God wanted their vision veiled. But only for now, as we'll see. Anyway, as Jesus joined them on the road, he overheard their conversation, and he asked this in verse 17. He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Today's English, what you talking about? (laughs) What you talking about? But This simple question evoked quite the response from them. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. (laughs) What a picture. It stopped them dead in their tracks. Why? A couple of reasons. First, they were, it says they were sad. They were overwhelmingly sad. They stood still, looking sad, but also they were shocked that anyone even needed to ask. Look in verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? How do you not know? Have you been living in a hole the past week? Apparently... Jesus was the talk of the town. The whole city was abuzz. And Jesus' royal parade into the city had drawn huge crowds. He made a ruckus in the temple courts. The city was in an uproar. His teaching captivated masses of people. His public trials before Pilate and Herod grabbed everyone's attention. And then his death we all know, was a public spectacle that many soberly witnessed. And even now, rumors were beginning to spread that he might not be dead anymore. Hence, the traveler's incredulous question, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? There's a lot of irony in this question as well. In truth, the disciples didn't know what had really happened in Jerusalem. And meanwhile, Jesus knew better than anyone because it had happened to him. Nevertheless, Jesus 
asked another question in verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And he wasn't playing dumb. He was inviting them to explain what they understood. And so they did just that. He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Michael Wilcock calls this the gospel according to Cleopas. Starts out wonderfully, right? Very accurately, verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Jesus was indeed all of this and more. Jesus was a prophet and a mighty one at that. Mighty in both deed and word. That means in both miracles and teaching. Right? which comprised the majority of Jesus' ministry as well as the majority of the book of Luke. Mighty in deed and word. He was, but he was also mighty in deed and word before both God and man. So God the Father himself had seemingly approved of Jesus on numerous times, even publicly and audibly declaring so. And crowds flocked to Jesus. He was highly esteemed by all the people. But then, the events of the last few days changed everything. In verse 20, they said, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. These travelers, along with many others, had expected more from Jesus. And they said, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Finally, they mentioned the amazing reports they heard that morning. That that some women made the incredible claim that Jesus was alive. So, Cleopas' gospel included the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus but it was incomplete. It was missing something. Can you tell what? They didn't believe that that last part was true. Verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. In other words, Jesus hadn't been seen yet, so they couldn't believe it was true. But without the resurrection, without the real resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ crumbles. Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death would be meaningless if he were still dead. 
This gospel lacked any good news. The way they described it, it was all sad, bad news. Jesus had been amazing. He was, but not anymore. The root issue with what the Emmaus travelers said was in their expectations of Jesus. Okay, that's really the, the root issue of what they, they... See, they expected Jesus to line up perfectly with the way that they thought things should go, the way they thought history should unfold. And we can see their misplaced hopes in, in what we read in verse 21. is the crushed hope there. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Sounds good at first. It doesn't sound like that inappropriate of a hope, right? The problem was their hopes didn't line up with God's plans. It didn't line up with God's plans for the Messiah, as we're going to see plainly in Jesus' response to them shortly. Here's the first point from the story, which I believe translates to us today this way. Our expectations for Jesus must line up with Scripture. Okay? I think we're going to see this very clearly. What we expect from Jesus, what we expect Jesus to do, what we expect, who we expect Jesus to be, needs to line up with God's word. We're going to see, in the verses ahead, a very clear focus on Scripture. And, and this might seem to come out of the blue, right? We've been, we've been talking about Jesus' death and his resurrection. So why bring up Scripture now? But it's not as... Out of the blue, as you might think. After all, even at the door of the empty tomb, the angels drew attention to Jesus' words. Remember that last week? Do you remember his words, what he said? Do you believe his words? And if Jesus is God, as we believe he is, and as he had just proven to be, then Jesus' words are God's words. So it's not as much of a transition as you expect. But it is interesting, right? That after all these huge events, what Jesus beelines to is Scripture. As he responds to these travelers and trying to correct their faulty expectations. Look with me in verse 25. So they just said, the women, it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus calls them foolish. Slow of heart. So is Jesus calling them stupid? No. This is a rebuke. It was likely a gentle rebuke, not unkind. It's like he was sighing. (sighs) You just don't get it, do you? You're clueless. Didn't you pay attention in synagogue school? (laughs) Called into question their expectations for the Messiah or the Christ, because it sure didn't sound like they got their expectations from the prophets in Scripture. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets, 
Many of you know the prophets have predicted all kinds of things about the Messiah. But hardly anyone was cluing into the fact that the Messiah was supposed to suffer. All along, that was the plan. Verse 26, that's what he says. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And then after that, enter into his glory. And the popular idea of the day was a, of a conquering Christ, not a crucified Christ. But in order to get there, people had to conveniently ignore some pretty potent prophecies. Like that he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he'd be stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, and crushed. And since they missed all that, they definitely missed the prophecies about resurrection. And they had this nice little idea of a, of a deliverer who would, who would rise up and defeat all of Israel's enemies. And, and Jesus ended up thoroughly disappointing them on this expectation. Now we might wonder, well, wouldn't it have been kind of great if, if Jesus had done these things? If he had conquered Rome and established his throne right then. But Jesus didn't fall short of Israel's expectations. In fact, he far superseded them. His mission was far greater, far more substantial, far more important than they expected. See, Jesus' mission wasn't to just save Israel temporarily, from a human enemy. Jesus' mission was to save the world eternally from all of our ultimate enemies. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's not nearly lofty enough. He was the one to redeem Israel the world. And it was in, in Christ's words, necessary that he suffer and die before be raised into the glory. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? This was all part of the plan. It was, and it was the most important part of the plan. If he didn't do this, sins could never actually be taken away. Perfect blood had to be shed. If he didn't do this, death would never have been defeated. And death would still spell the end of all of us. The disciples saw him die and thought, Oh no, it's all done. Jesus wasn't the Christ after all. But as Philip Ryken points out, the disciples did not yet understand that far from proving that he was not the Messiah, the sufferings of the cross proved that he was. Now, you might not think that Jesus should have led a revolt against Rome like the disciples did. But we've got all kinds of expectations about Jesus that are misguided, misplaced, and ultimately unbiblical. We may think, for example, that Jesus is so loving that we can get away with living however we want. 
God is love, absolutely. But he is not only love. Okay? He also hates sin. We may think that, that Jesus is a kind of like mystical fairy in the sky who grants us all kinds of wishes. Not as sovereign, omnipotent king who reigns over the universe and who we should both love and fear. We may think of Jesus as a possible way to salvation, along with all the other world religions, one way among many. And it's like, he's good for me, but he's not necessarily for you. We may think that Jesus, we may think of him as a heavy-handed rule maker and a law enforcer, kind of a cosmic cop, so to speak. Not as both the lawmaker and mercy giver. A gracious Lord. Merciful Lord. We may think of Jesus as someone who just wants everyone to be happy and get along. Now joy, peace, and unity are important. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. If if the Jesus we believe in is different than the Jesus of the Bible, we've only created an idol. What we believe it about and expect from Jesus needs to line up with Scripture, or else what we believe about and expect from Jesus could be damnably false. So what is Jesus really like? Who is Jesus? That's why studying about Jesus and God's word is so crucial. We need an accurate, truthful picture of our Messiah and Savior. He is God. He is Savior. He is King. He is Judge. But maybe he's not exactly like we think those to be. So go to the word. He does hear our prayers. He does unfathomably love us, and he does serve as our high priest, but he's not all about us. The universe is all about him and about God's glory. He is sovereign and holy and and powerful and wise and faithful and, and wrathful and gracious and merciful and much more. But where do we get those ideas from? We need to get them from here. Many of our expectations of Jesus need to be corrected. We've got to go to the source of truth. There's a highly unfortunate tendency today among some Christians to sharply differentiate between the authority of Jesus as the Word and the Bible as God's Word. And maybe they'll capitalize the word in the lowercase, his word, or whatever the case may be. But these are, they are distinct things, yes. And the Bible is not God. It's not the fourth person of the Trinity. But the word, the word, and God's word are inextricably linked together. Okay? Because Jesus testifies to the authority of Scripture 
and Scripture testifies to the authority of Jesus. If you elevate one at the expense of the other, you only end up belittling both. You know how how some Bibles put all of Jesus' words in red letters? As if those words are the most important words in all the Bible? You know what the problem with that is? All of the Bible is Jesus' words. Some Christians pit Jesus against the Bible, and that is a total false dichotomy, a false choice. It's not one or the other. It's both or neither. And we've got to understand that. Our expectations for Jesus must line up with Scripture. But there's another side to this coin which I believe Jesus makes clear in the verse that follows. This is a two-way street, which we often misunderstand as a one-way street. See, also, our interpretations of Scripture must lead us to believe Jesus. So, you get what that says? Our Jesus must line up with Scripture, and our Scripture must lead us to Jesus. Jesus told his traveling companions they were slow of heart to believe. To believe what? To believe all that the scriptures said about Jesus. And that was a lot of scripture. So much so that look at what Jesus said next. Okay, he's talking in verse 25. O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's a children's puzzle game that you probably all know well called Connecting the Dots. Yeah, I even put it in the kids' bulletins today if you got one of those. But in it, in the game, the page, a page of paper is filled with all kinds of dots that are numbered one to whatever. And before you start drawing, it just looks like a mess of dots all over the page. Usually, there's usually no coherent picture from what you can tell. But then you take a pen or a pencil and you start tracing the lines from one to two to three and so on. And slowly, a picture begins to take shape. may not be super impressive, but once all of the dots are connected, you can tell what the hidden picture was all along. Right? You know what Jesus was doing here with the disciples? He was connecting the dots. Scripture to them was like a mess of numbered dots on a page. They couldn't see the picture. They didn't understand the point. And given the events of the last few days, they were super confused about it all. But then Jesus comes along, takes a pen and starts drawing. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when he got to the end of the picture, the picture that was revealed was a picture of himself. Every time we read, hear, or study scripture, we are... Often subconsciously, we are making interpretations of it. 
doing devotions, okay, discussing it in our small groups, listening to sermons. All these things involve interpreting. But if our interpretations of Scripture do not ultimately lead us to Christ, we're misinterpreting. We're just drawing all over the page, not connecting the dots that are supposed to be connected. We're misinterpreting because Jesus is the centerpiece, the focal point, and the underlying theme of all Scripture. Everything is either pointing ahead to him, pointing at him, or pointing back to him. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How incredible would it have been to have been there and hear that? I am so jealous of them. We'd love to know exactly what Jesus said here, but we don't need to hear exactly what he said because we've still got the text Jesus was preaching from. We've got the scriptures. And what Luke is doing here, just giving us this one little verse of description, he's giving us the key to interpreting all of that scripture. Especially the often confusing Old Testament. He's saying, it's all about Christ. Jesus began with Moses, so the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, which we believe Moses wrote, including Genesis, very beginning. He was, the Christ would be the one to crush the serpent's head. He was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He was the true tabernacle and temple. He was the true snake that was lifted up in the wilderness. He was the perfect fulfillment of the law. He was the better high priest than Aaron. And then he moved on to all the prophets, so Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and many others. He was Isaiah's suffering servant. He was Jeremiah's bringer of the new covenant. He was Daniel's exalted son of man. He was Zechariah's king riding on a donkey. And he didn't ignore the other books as well in between. As he interpreted, says, from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the poetry and prophecy and praise of the Psalms, the wisdom of Proverbs, the anticipation of, and fulfillment of history, they all pointed to him. Here, I'm going to show you a video really quick from Pastor Tim Keller. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology. That's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's... He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. I love that. The Bible's not about you. If you don't yet see Jesus as the center of Scripture, yet, no, no, the center of history, really, I plead with you today. We must come to understand this. We must believe it. Because Jesus also rightfully needs to be the center of each one of our lives. He's not just a king. He's the king. Not just a savior. He's the savior. He is the whole point of our existence. To believe and worship and love him. You may even have a high view of Scripture. But if it doesn't lead you to Jesus, it's worthless. In John 5.39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you come to him today, you can have life. Life abundant eternal life. If you hear the witness of Scripture and decide to to repent of your sins and believe in Christ, you will be saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So I urge you, hear His words in all Scripture. Hear Him. Repent. Believe. And come to Him today. Right about now, these two disciples must have thought this mysterious traveler was a genius. He's brilliantly showing them what Scripture taught about the Christ. And yet, funny thing, they still didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Maybe they came to fully believe what Jesus was telling them, but they still didn't see. But these people actually needed to see. Because this story doubles for us as a resurrection eyewitness account. Jesus did want to eventually reveal himself to them as the resurrected Savior. But it's pretty clear they couldn't get there on their own. They were blinded. That is, until God lifted the veil. 
And this is the point I believe we'll see as the story continues. Recognizing Jesus as Scripture's fulfillment requires God-opened eyes. Recognizing Jesus as Scripture's fulfillment requires God-opened eyes. In order to truly see Jesus for who he really is and believe in him, God must open our eyes. See how this happened for our Emmaus travelers in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent, is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So since it was getting late, the two disciples did the polite and hospitable thing to do. They invited Jesus to come home with them to get some food and get some rest. I imagine they probably didn't want the conversation to end either. (laughs) Jesus, we see, feigned intent to keep going. But then he consented to their hospitality. But things got really interesting at the dinner table. Verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took bread, took the bread, and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Sound familiar? Maybe Jesus was doing a little reenactment of his last supper. Maybe not. Maybe the disciples had seen Jesus in some familiar context to this before. Or... Maybe as he broke the bread, they saw the scars on his wrists. Whatever the case was, when Jesus broke bread, things clicked for the disciples. But it wasn't their super observational skills that clued them in. No, God opened their eyes. Look in verse 30 again. Okay, he's at the table. When he's at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Can you even imagine that moment? No, of course we can't, right? To think, they'd been walking along the road with the resurrected Jesus all along. I imagine their jaws must have hit the floor and their eyes popped out of their sockets. A few months back, I had a surprising encounter on the downtown streets of Ottawa. I was getting in our car when I noticed a friend of mine strolling down the road and he was deep in conversation with an older man who was walking with him. And anyway, I just rolled down the window to say hi, waved and said, hey, Daniel. And my friend waved back, and he called me over and introduced me to his friend. Matt, this is Dr. James Packer. Now, clueless me didn't register who that actually was. And so I said, nice to meet you. And then I drove off. Then I started thinking in the car, James Packer, James Packer, Dr. James Packer. He couldn't have met J.I. Packer, could he have? If you don't know that name, J.I. Packer is a world-renowned author and theologian. He wrote the famous book, Knowing God, among many others. Turns out, it was him. It was J.I. Packer walking down the streets of Ottawa, and I had met him, kind of. I mean, really, I missed my chance to meet him. I hadn't recognized him, especially in such a foreign context. But imagine in this story, if that had happened. Imagine if the disciples had missed their chance to recognize Jesus. Thankfully, they didn't. God, in his grace, opened their eyes in a miraculous and stunning way. 
And now they knew. They knew for sure. Not only was Jesus the center of Scripture, he was risen. He was alive again. And then, as quick as he was recognized, Jesus disappeared. Look. And their eyes were opened in verse 31. Their eyes were opened they, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. What? <laughs> he vanished? Now this tells us, first of all, that, that Jesus' glorified body was something special. He still had a physical body, but he was no longer restrained by the normal boundaries of it anymore. Now he could move and appear and disappear in a way that we can't even explain. We also wonder why. Why would Jesus just vanish like this? Poof! He gone. Why? The fact is, Jesus had finished what he was there to do. He completed his task. He wanted to reveal himself to his disciples in a memorable and powerful way. He wanted them to know that everything was pointing to him. And he wanted them to know that he was risen. Therefore, it was all true. Do you know that God works in a similar way when it comes to our lives as well? Because on our own, we are all blinded by our sin and by the devil. We don't see our need for a Savior. We can't see Jesus for who he is. So Ephesians 1.18 says, We need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, We need to have our blinders removed in order to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is something only God can do remove the blinders. And if you already believe and follow Christ, thank God right now that he's opened your eyes. And if you don't, pray right now that he would open your eyes to his truth, to see Jesus. And when we truly see him, who oh boy, it is an unbelievable experience. It changes us. Sure did for the disciples in Luke 24. See how they respond to this. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Here's what I believe we're going to see from these this final part of our passage, hearing from Jesus in Scripture. Hearing from Jesus in Scripture should ignite burning hearts that can't stay silent. Hearing from Jesus in Scripture should ignite, should fuel, should refuel our hearts to burn and not stay silent anymore.
I love their description, how they felt as Jesus explained Scripture to them. In verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? The best way they could describe it was they, it was like they felt they were set on fire. He opened the Scriptures to them, and that ignited their hearts. God's Word can do that to us as well. When we truly hear from God through Scripture, often the first time that we grasp the Gospel, the first time we come to understand, it feels like we've been set on fire. Right? But this can happen any time that we open the very words of God for ourselves. And it's going to happen any Sunday, any given Sunday, as we gather to hear from Scripture. This can happen every day as you open your Bible. You are hearing from God. Do you get that? Hearing from God. He can set our hearts aflame with passion and power. I know I've felt this way before, and I bet many of you have as well. So, I ask today, is your heart burning? If it's not, maybe we just need to light the match and hold our lives up to it. But when our hearts are set ablaze by truth, our mouths can't stay silent. After Jesus vanished, these disciples booked it back to Jerusalem. You see that? Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. This is great. Earlier they had said, in verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. In other words, it was too late to travel. Not anymore. Not anymore. When they arrived back to the other disciples, they bore witness, in verse 33, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. He is risen indeed. They were eating crow, but gladly so. The women who sounded crazy this morning were right. Jesus is risen indeed. They also had another additional testimony come in. They say, and he's appeared to Simon. That's Peter. So either they had heard a report to add to it, or Peter brought his report at the same time. But either way, all these reports were coming in. Jesus was alive. Indeed. He ignites our hearts. He inspires our witness. And we can't stay silent anymore. We have to get this into our stubborn little heads. <laughs> our lives are not all about us. Our faith is not all about us. And heavens to goodness, God's word is not all about us. At the risk of being repetitive or redundant, I'm going to go back to this, and I'm going to read a quote from Andrew Wilson, because it really hammers home the huge overarching point for today. It goes this way. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along. If I 
had just been resurrected from the dead. And I wanted to show my friends and followers that I was alive again. I know how I do it. A flash of light, a trumpet fanfare, a loud bang, and then suddenly I'd appear in front of them. No, even better, above them, announcing, It's me! In a booming voice, as triumphantly as I could. What I wouldn't do, I can be certain, is sidle up to them one day as they're walking home in misery, tell them off, take them through a detailed Bible study, tear a loaf of bread in half, and then vanish into thin air in the middle of dinner. Yet that's what Jesus did. Apparently, get this, knowing that Jesus was alive could wait. Knowing that Jesus was the center of Scripture could not. The difference in the lives of these two disciples is dramatic. Hey, didn't it feel like your heart was on fire as he went through the scriptures? That's the dramatic difference it makes. When you grasp that Jesus is the center of scripture. If you read the Bible as if it's mainly about Israel or mainly about you, it's like reading it with a cold heart and your eyes shut. When you discover it's mainly about Jesus and God's purpose for the nations through him, your heart catches fire and your eyes are opened. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Ignite our hearts, God. Fuel them. Let us burn for you. Break our silence. Convict our, our fearful sin. May we boldly proclaim your life to those around us. And may we find that life ourselves through Christ, through the word of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.